Amen. Thank you, Ken. Worship team. Man, exciting morning already. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Revelation this morning, chapter 17. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your phone or on your tablet. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we put um, black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, Revelation chapter seven is, or excuse me, 17 is where we'll be this morning. And so let me just catch us back up to where we are. We are um, in a sermon series going through the book of Revelation. Um, the name itself uh, means unveiling, the idea of something being unveiled. And so it's not um, a speculative idea of what could be, but more of an unveiling of what already is. And so it's like turning a chapter in a book. Um, you're beginning to, as you read the Revelation, word by word, verse by verse, you're reading about something that already is. And we're going to see that, of course, today. But it's also an unveiling of the things going on in our life today. Whether we are in the end times or not, the truths and the realities coming out of Revelation are explaining to us a lot of what we're dealing with and struggling with and, and fighting for even today um, as Christians in the world. And so we're going to see that as well today. And so just a brief recap. We've made it all the way through the book of Revelation to chapter 17. So just let me give you some framework. Uh, Revelation opens in chapter 1 with an unveiling, a revealing of Jesus as he actually is. He's no longer disguised as, as an infant in a manger. No longer is he simply wearing flesh as a man and looking like you or I. But he now is in his glory as the Lord Jesus Christ, King of Kings. And John, the one who's writing down Revelation, sees Jesus in chapter 1 and falls on his face as though dead which is quite interesting because of all the apostles, he was the one who probably spent the most intimate time with Jesus here on earth, but now he's seeing Jesus fully glorified in Revelation 1. So that's how Revelation begins, with this unveiling of the glory of, of Jesus. And then in chapter, from chapters 2 through 3, we get these seven letters written to seven churches um, that were around in the first century, um, literal churches with literal struggles, Christians dealing with a lot of persecution. Then chapter 4 and 5, we get this unveiling or this, this imagery of the throne room of God and he who is seated on the throne, God the Father. And, and the only one worthy to open the scroll or unveil the end times is the lamb who was slain, Jesus himself. And so that's 4 and 5. And then we enter into these groups of seven. We get seven seals broken or opened. And we get seven trumpets blown. Then we get seven bowls that are poured out by seven angels. And so... What happens then is we get to chapter 19 of that. So let me start with the seven, three, three groups of seven and kind of give you some bearings there. Maybe you haven't been a part of the series or maybe as we went through it, you sure, still aren't sure how to get your mind wrapped around the framework of Revelation. So here's our options. So you have seven seals that are broken. They seem to be sequential, unfolding of events. There's a framework to it. The first four um, or five have to deal with the unleashing of plagues and destruction, reflecting God's judgment being poured out against sin. And then you get to the sixth of, in all groups, these groups of seven, you get to the sixth and there seems to be this, this war beginning to brew between God and his followers and all of God's enemies. And then you get to the seventh of each of those, the seventh uh, seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, and you get this glory of God revealed, what we call a storm theophany. It's the glory of God so magnificent, it's like being in the midst of this thunderstorm, just lightning like going off and thunder and, and just this, this radiant, thunderous glory of God. And so as you've got some options here. So let me kind of explain what your options would be. One would be to see the seven seals in sequence with then the seven trumpets happening afterwards and then after that the seven bowls in like a linear fashion, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All unfolding sequentially. Now some struggles or some problems with that is this. They all seem to have the same framework. Though the, the plagues, especially like the first four, are different from each group of seven, they all begin to kind of climax up around the sixth to this, wage, this war that is waged between God and his enemies, ending with this storm theophany. So they seem to end in the same place, which is kind of interesting. So either God unveils himself with this storm theophany three times sequentially, or there's something else going on. You, you tracking with me? So let me give you a couple other options. One would be a, a secular view or, or a recap view, the idea that the seven seals are then also symbolically the seven trumpets and then also the seven bowls because they all have the same framework and they all end in the same place. Now, there's another option as well. 
And here's the other option. It's more of the telescopic view, and this takes a minute to explain. So if you could just picture a telescope moving from your left to right, getting bigger as it moves right across the stage. And so you've got seven seals starting right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then as the seventh seal is broken, within the seventh seal, you've got seven trumpets. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then when the seventh trumpet is blown, within the seventh trumpet, you have the seven bowls. It's a telescopic view. That allows them all to end at the same place. Now, here's here's the thing. It, It doesn't matter which view you necessarily take because... Ultimately, what God is revealing is that there's going to be this brewing rebellion against God from his enemies. There's no longer going to be incognito, in disguise, but God's enemies here on earth are going to gather together against him in a rebellious fashion. And at which point God will unveil his glory and make all of his enemies like his footstool. So whichever view you take, I'm good with it because we all end in the same place, this unveiling of the glory of God and the ushering in of God's kingdom. The kingdom of man becomes the kingdom of God. And so now let me just help you out. So um, when you read through the Bible, especially places like Genesis 1 and 2, there's some interesting things that happen that if you're not careful or not familiar with how this literature is written, you might get lost. So what happens in Genesis 1, you get this overview of the seven days, six days of creation, the seventh day God rests. Then you get to chapter 2, and now God's creating Adam and Eve. What's happening? Did that not happen in the previous chapter? Well, here's what's happening. Chapter 2 of Genesis is God taking a microscope and putting it on day 6 and illuminating the details of day 6. So there's a recapping of creation. Okay, So we see that in different places. Um, That quite possibly could be going on here in Revelation. It seems that way with the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. What's laid out in overview, then we get to chapter 17. We're going to begin to see that play out with more detail, kind of a recapping, if you will, of what already has been overviewed. So that might help you because we're going to read through some things and you're going to think, well, didn't we cover that in chapter 12 or didn't we cover that in chapter 13 or 14? Yeah, absolutely. There seems to be a, maybe this overview given and then there's a microscope placed on some specific details and symbolism. So there's just some help for you uh, as we go through Revelation. If you're visiting with us, thanks for joining us. I hope today is helpful for you and encouraging and, 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 and if nothing else, inspiring. Um, uh, but, but more than anything, we want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ is King of Kings even today. Even before this unfolds, he is still King of Kings today. And uh, we're going to get started now in chapter 17 as the crescendo of human history begins to build. As this, this building up, this ramping up to what theologians will call the eschaton where human history gives way to eternity. The bookend, if you will, of temporal time gives way to eternity. And so we're, right now we're in that ramping up. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and and it had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned, with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, two primary characters here we're going to look at. The woman, this prostitute, and then also uh, the one on which she is seated. And so the woman, first of all, um, when we look at what's happening here, this woman is interacting with the beast that we've, we saw from chapter 13. We'll look at that in just a second. So what we're seeing here about this woman is that she's going to be very luring, very tempting to the nations. That's symbolically through the idea of her being a prostitute, sexual immorality, and the idea of wine or drunkenness. She's going to find a way to intoxicate the nations and draw them underneath her spell, if you will, into some sort of loyalty or allegiance, which we're going to see play out here. 
So what are the options? Are we talking about an actual person here? Are we talking about a nation? Are we talking about a religion? And so as we begin to unpack what quite possibly may be going on here, especially as we see her name in just a minute, is that this is more than likely is, a, is potentially a nation or some type of a kingdom or some type of religion here on earth that lures people in, tempts people into allegiance And so here we potentially have a blasphemous nation or a blasphemous religion that seduces the nations. What with? It seems to be some sense of luxury or wealth, according to the description here. Uh, The woman was arrayed in purple. That's symbolic for royalty. Uh, And also in scarlet, which is symbolic for wealth. She's adorned, which is an English word. The actual Greek word here is to be golded, but that's not an English word. When you dip something in gold, you gold it. And so she's Golded with gold. It's like this double emphasis on the idea of wealth here. She is literally golded with gold or adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So there seems to be in her luring some sense of wealth here. Now that's, that's closely connected to what we've read in Revelation before, how the economy itself, uh, currency, will be used to manipulate people into following the beast. That if you don't have the mark of the beast, whatever that might be, you're not able to participate in the economy of the society or things will be greatly inflated because you're operating on the black market or some type of bootleg system. And so the economy, wealth, seems to be one of her primary leverage points here as she lures and seduces people in. Now, there's that that doesn't surprise me. Does it surprise you? I mean, we are prone to be lured by wealth, aren't we? And we we get sucked into some, some, some weird things sometimes because of Wealth. Anybody get involved in the pyramid schemes going around in the, in the mid-90s? Me, me neither. Yeah, that was brilliant. Pay X number of dollars and just wait, and if enough people sign up, you're going to get paid up this amount of money, and then, it, and then it just keeps going. It keeps going until what? Until it gets busted, and then everything folds, and you lose your 100 bucks. That was just such a smart thing, right? So, we're so we do such silly things sometimes, and we're lure, quickly and easily lured by wealth. And it seems like there's going to be some type of luxury or wealth utilized to lure people in. Because we ask ourselves, how would I ever be lured into some kind of, yeah, weird religion or blasphemous system? And, and so it, it's, it's through this, this idea of being drunken or intoxicated with potentially wealth. We look at the beast. This is the same beast from chapter 13, the beast who rose out of the sea in Revelation 13, who displayed the mortal wound as though he had been healed. We spent some time on that when we were there. This, uh, if you will, this imitation of Jesus himself. So this beast is the Antichrist, utilizing some type of wound, some mortal wound that looks like has been healed to, to, uh, to, to project himself uh, to the people. And people are amazed by this. Wow, you should be dead. We don't know if he's overcome cancer or what has happened to this particular individual, but he's done something mimicking or hijacking the cross and the resurrection to gain loyalty from the people. That's the beast who this woman is interacting with. So we see that this woman was sitting on the scarlet beast or riding the wave of influence of this beast, and she's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She's holding something in her hand that to those who look on it looks like it should be good and pleasurable, but inside are abominations of rebellion towards God. If you're taking notes with us today, let's fill in this first statement. This is what we're seeing about Satan himself. Because remember this beast, this antichrist, is under the loyalty and allegiance and influence of who? Chapter 12, the dragon, Satan himself. Satan uses the intoxicating pleasures of wealth and immorality to seduce people away from God. Now, did the pastor just say that money is evil? Absolutely not. It's an inanimate object. It's not evil. Jesus didn't say it was evil. What did he say is evil? The root of all evil is what? The love, the intoxication of Wealth, being drawn to compromise your your character and your standards, your morality, your faithfulness to Jesus, being tempted to compromise all those things for wealth is the root of all evil. And so here we see this prostitute riding the wave of the influence of this beast, luring people, tempting people with wealth and immorality. Did you know that immorality itself offers up pleasure? 
There's pleasure to be had in sin. It's very short-lived and temporary depending on the sin, but there's a pleasure, a euphoria, if you will, to be had, whether it's just an adrenaline release or a high or or some sense of self-gratification, whatever it is, whether it's gossip um, or or stealing something. Like there, There can be a pleasure, a momentary pleasure involved. And so this prostitute is luring people and seducing and intoxicating people with wealth and immorality into some sort of allegiance. Away from God. Verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. This is her name. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. I'm going to slow down here. We've just been given her name. And so we need to unpack the significance of this name, Babylon the Great, Mother of prostitutes. She's not just a prostitute. She gives birth to prostitutes, if you will. Her influence passes on. Her her sorcery, her sense of of luring people, she passes that on to others. She's a mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. So Babylon is such a significant name, both in just secular human history and also in biblical history, as though the two aren't one. So let me just give you some historical significance for Babylon, the city Babylon. And then we'll move into some biblical significance. So um, there were two specific periods in human history where Babylon, uh, maybe even three, where Babylon was the biggest city on earth. Okay? Biggest city on earth. So from like 1770 to 1670 B.C., Babylon was known as the greatest and the biggest city on earth. From 612 to 320 B.C., Babylon was the biggest or notably the largest city on earth. It was the first city that historians believe reached over 200,000 in population. It was built along the banks of the Euphrates River, which is the modern-day city of Kala in Iraq. It's just south of Baghdad. In 1983, Saddam Hussein, you may not know this, he actually began building, rebuilding it on the ruins of Babylon. He began rebuilding Babylon. And a couple things about this you should know. Um, he installed a portrait of himself and King Nebuchadnezzar, which we'll talk about in just a minute, an Old Testament king, king of Babylon, who, who, who overtook Jerusalem, sacked the temple, and deported the Jews. So he, did you know that Saddam Hussein actually put a portrait of himself with King Nebuchadnezzar up there as he began to rebuild Babylon? And not only that, he took on one of King Nebuchadnezzar's tools, and he inscribed his name in the bricks that they used to rebuild uh, the city. Uh, And here's a quote on one of the bricks. This was built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. This has been within the last 30 years of human history. Babylon still has this significance and this influence. Some of you who are military may even know this, that um, after uh, we went into Iraq, um, the uh, military forces actually set up Camp Alpha um, right on the ruins of um, Babylon, which really made some people mad over there. And so Babylon still has this weight and this significance and this influence even today. But biblically speaking, you may not know this, but Babylon goes all the way back to Genesis 11 with the first great rebellion of man. The first attempt from man to gather and unite as one people on earth to build for themselves a great city, a great tower, and a great name. Not just building a way to get to heaven, but literally to take the glory from God upon themselves. Genesis 11 says that man sought to make a great name for himself by building this city. Guess what the city's name was? Babylon or Babel. You know it as the city or tower of Babel. Same Hebrew word here. So some significant biblical roots here with Babylon. Of course, um, as we just mentioned, this is, um, the, this is the, the, uh, the, the nation or the, uh, the kingdom that sacked Jerusalem and the temple under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar dragging into captivity um, biblical authors like Daniel, if you know this, Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into captivity, significant piece of your Old Testament. Um, You may not know this, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, so the book of Esther, Esther's cousin Mordecai was also taken into captivity. And so this city of Babylon, this, this, this kingdom represented here, had a significant impact on the Old Testament. Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied that Jerusalem would fall to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Of course, the book of Daniel is specifically talking about Nebuchadnezzar dragging into captivity the Jews. Jeremiah 51.7. Listen to this prophecy from Jeremiah. 
This is the Old Testament. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Does that sound familiar? Jeremiah is prophesying what's being unveiled in Revelation. That, that, that Babylon will have this intoxicating effect on the nations, leading them into rebellion against God or leading them into madness. Now, something that will help you then is as we read through the Bible, you've got symbolism. You've got what's called um, typology or significant symbolism. And so understanding here then that Babylon itself potentially is symbolic of something else. And so we know this already, that at this point in human history, biblical authors would associate Rome with Babylon because Rome also had sacked Jerusalem, sacked the temple, led the Jews into pagan worship and immorality just like Nebuchadnezzar had done. And so even in letters like 1 Peter 5.13, Peter calls Rome Babylon symbolically. So we know that Rome has a significant influence over John's writings of Revelation. Rome is thriving at this point in history, off and running, several emperors in. So this idea of Babylon rep representing Rome is, is very likely what's going on here. But what, as we saw with the number 666, most likely referring to Nero, one of the Roman emperors, that being a typology of a, of, a, of, a, of a leader who is to come like Nero, that Rome itself then, if we think about Rome in this day and time, would reflect some type of, of gathering of forces against God in the end times. So what happened with Babel... Okay, Genesis 11, what happened again? What happened with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar against God's people would happen again. What happened in the first century where Rome also persecuted the followers of Jesus would happen again. That what John is seeing, is saying, he's saying to all the readers, it's like nothing I can compare it to other than the seduction of Babylon. As he's looking to this ramp up, this end times crescendo where human history is knocking on its final doors of measured time. He's saying it's, it's like the Tower of Babel. Like he wants you to picture something that in your mind that, that is like nothing you've seen before in your lifetime. These gathering, this gathering of nations against God. Verse 6. And I saw the woman... Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, I not only think that John marveled greatly, I think he wants us to marvel greatly. He wants us to feel the weight of what we just read. The opening of the chapter talks about intoxication with pleasure and luring in. Now it's beginning to culminate in the, in the grossest, Expression of evil, taking human life with the blood of the martyrs. Now, to get some indication of, of what John is seeing and describing for us, we could look at what happened in John's time. John was very familiar with persecution. He's, the, to our knowledge, the last living disciple at this point in time. All the other disciples had been martyred. He watched all of his fellow brothers be martyred for the sake of Jesus. History would tell us that before he writes down Revelation, that he was actually persecuted and they attempted to kill John himself and, and quite possibly was thrown in a vat of boiling oil, but he survived it. And then they exiled him to the island to write this down. So he's very familiar with the bloodshed of the martyrs. Very likely had to take his own brothers and sisters off of crosses or pick them up off of the ground or drag them out of the pits where they were stoned to give them a proper burial. He was very familiar with the blood of the martyrs. The Christian community as a whole was very familiar with this. Under the reign of Nero, if you've studied human history, one of the most violent and horrific persecutors of the Christian faith, some of the things that, that he did, um, he would take animal skins and, uh, and wrap them or, or have them sewn around Christians and make them craw crawl around on their hands and knees out in the arena. They, he would unleash dogs on them. And Christians would find their death at the 
at the mercy of dogs. He would take their clothes and dip them in wax and then put them back on them and set them up on these poles in his garden. He would light these Christians on fire to illuminate his garden at night. Not to mention he would hang them on the crosses, both upside down and right side up. He would throw them off buildings. I mean, this was a very bloodthirsty man. Now, we look, we look at the earth today and we can see entities and people who are seen to be that bloodthirsty for the followers of Jesus. Okay? But the idea of what's happening here under the reign of Nero in Rome first century, what John is describing is even more widespread, it seems like, than what we see today. Pockets of violence, certain particular parts of the world where it's not safe. What we're seeing is a world engulfed in this bloodshed and violence. And we, we ask ourselves, how could it ever get that bad? Right? We can understand extremists and jihadists and people who are, you know, brainwashed and small sex, maybe doing stuff like that. But the world as a whole coming against Christianity, how could that ever happen? I think it's important to note what we just learned about sin. Sin is intoxicating. Sin is intoxicating. The seeds of sin are sown and they give fruit to deeper and darker sin. That's true in our lives today. Pursue, cultivate, make room in your life for sin. And if it's not rooted out or, or pulled out, guess what? It's going to come to fruition and give birth to what? Greater sin. Why? Because the pleasures are no more pleasurable. You've got to do it, right? It's got to be darker. It's got to be deeper. It's got to be bigger. So what seems like, um, you know, lightweight pornography will give birth to some really dark things. And we say, how did that person ever get here? And we look at how drug addictions go from where they start as just a, a social activity, a, an unexpected one-night thing. And then all of a sudden there's desperation and darkness and, and even, even death. How did it get there? Because sin is intoxicating. It's blinding. It's drunkening. It, it reduces our senses. Our spiritual senses become calloused. The first time there's conviction, there's a sense of this isn't right if you're in Christ, but you continue and you continue and you continue, right? And this callousness comes over. How could it ever get to the place where the, the world would be this bloodthirsty, if you will, drunken on the blood of the martyrs? Because sin gives birth to more sin. If you're taking notes, the intoxication of sin always gives way to deeper and darker sin. It's the nature of sin. In the same way, Christ in you is sanctifying you, growing you. You'll look more like Jesus tomorrow than you do today, especially if you sow seeds of God's word into your life and you spend time with him. Every moment you're with the Father and acknowledging his presence are like seeds being sown. It's a cultivation of, of a garden and you're growing more and more progressively to be like Jesus. If on the other hand, you're sowing seeds of sin, then you know very well that you wake up tomorrow feeling more desperate than you did today. And you sow a sin to feel some sense of emptiness, and in the moment you feel pleasure, then tomorrow you feel more empty. And sin gives way to more sin. The intoxication of sin always gives way to deeper and darker sin. If it's not stamped out, rooted out, repented of. This is why those of us who are in Christ, repentance needs to be a daily habit, Right? A daily habit. How do we keep from, from being prone to wonder and going astray and being rebellious once again like we used to be? We, we repent. We come back before God. We receive his mercies that are brand new every morning. They wash over us. They, they bring us back. They guide us back to following Jesus. Revelation 17, verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Again, this prostitute and the Antichrist. This prostitute and the beast who rose from the sea or from the abyss. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Let me say that again. It, this beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So we've been introduced to something here. Now, we've already identified this beast as the Antichrist from Revelation 13. 
who had this mortal wound that was healed. And now here specifically we're looking at, again, this, um, this great effort from Satan to hijack the, the identity of God. And people struggle with um, the idea of, of, of worshiping a triune God or believing in triune God. Satan himself is portraying to be a triune God, a trinity God. With the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet and mimicking these attributes of God. And here the primary thing that we see being mimicked is, is God's eternal nature. So that phrase, who was and is not and is to come, is a play on words. That is a mimicking of he who was and is and is to come. This, this beautiful biblical reference to God's character from Old and New Testament saying, you want to know something about God's nature? He was and he is and he is to come. Saying what? He's eternal. Don't just think of him as was and don't just think of him as is or is to come. He always has been, he is now, and he always will be. And now here this beast is mimicking once again, pretending to be God here on earth by convincing the people that he was and was, is not, which is, again, Jesus saying, let me just be clear, he is not, but he pretending to be, was and is not and is to come. Now think about how um, Jesus identified himself in Revelation 1. Here's what Jesus said in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's that? Beginning and the end, the bookends. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is saying that. And then later on in Revelation 1, uh, John, when, in verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Why not? Why, sh- why should I not be scared? Because here's why. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I live. I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is introducing himself to us that way. Beginning in the end. I'm the one who died and is now alive again. And so this Antichrist is going to try to mimic that attribute in front of the people and somehow lure them into allegiance as they're awestruck. Wow, you were and you are and you you are to come. There's going to be definitely a sense of deity placed upon this individual. More than just political power, this particular individual is going to have some type of divine power or influence, if you will, over the people worshipped as God himself. Now, that's not unusual for human history, especially in Rome, for the Caesars who, who required of the people worshipped, worshipped, that they saw Rome, the, the emperor of Rome required the people to see him as a living God. Even Nebuchadnezzar back in the Old Testament required that when the music played, everybody fall on your face and worship me. And so this is an unusual idea, as far-fetched as it may seem for us, that a political leader would put himself out there as a deity. It's been done in human history, and evidently it's going to be done again as this particular leader influences the people to see him as one who was and is and is to come. Verse 9. This calls for a mind of wisdom. It's the second time John has implemented that to us. When he explained the mark of the beast was 666, he called us to wisdom. Here again, John is calling us to wisdom. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and has not, It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Now, I spent a lot of hours this last week trying to unpack all that with the help of some very smart theologians and commentators. And I feel like I could spend a couple hours with you talking through options, but here's what I came to at the conclusion is this. It's not quite clear fully the symbolism that's represented here, so let me talk through the more obvious pieces of this uh, in terms of symbolism. So you have this beast that has seven heads, okay? And so it says in here in verse 9, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, Rome uh, was actually built on seven hills. You may have already known that. Seven, the seven mountains, seven peaks, seven hills of 
Rome. And so you have the seven hills of Rome. Matter of fact, Domitian, who was um, the emperor at this time while this is being written, he actually instituted a celebration of Septimodium, which is a celebration of the seven hills. So Rome was known worldwide as the city on, a, on seven hills. So we're reading here that, uh, that this calls for wisdom. The heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. This woman being Rome, also being symbolic of a nation that is to come or a kingdom that is to come that will rise against God. Now, we keep reading, though. There, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. So it seems like there are seven kings referred to here, potentially emperors of Rome. The problem with trying to figure out which emperors are being meant here is the way that human history unfolded in the first century. Matter of fact, after Nero's death in the next year and a half of Rome, Rome saw four emperors. And so from a historical standpoint, not all those emperors were acknowledged, depending on the historian. Uh, and then not all of the uh, Roman emperors were favored, so some of those aren't recognized by historians. So it's really difficult to figure out, okay, which seven emperors are we talking about? Is Domitian the sixth one that is ruling over Rome at the time this is being written, and then there's one more who is to come? We know that more emperors come after Domitian, more than just one. So we're not quite sure how this plays out. But if we keep reading, we see something that is helpful. They are the seven kings. One has fallen. The one is. One has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain for a little while. As for the beast, he was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So here's what we can know, that this eighth is being connected to the seven. So whatever specifically is implied here, there will be a unique relationship uh, between this eighth, which is the beast, and the seven. I'll let you just, I'll just let you kind of marinate on that for a while, see if you can figure that one out. Then in verse 12, so we have a beast with seven heads and ten horns, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they, they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Let me stop there, and then we'll read the next verse. So two options here. Rome was divided into ten uh, provinces. And so potentially these are leaders from ten provinces of Rome uh, operating under the kingship or the, the authority of the emperor. But another thing that is known about Rome and its military practices is that when it would conquer a, a nation or a people, he would often set up a false king or um, this, this, this kind of small king, if you will, who had a sense of authority but was under the authority of Rome, these little smaller kings. And, and so what we're seeing here in this particular passage is this idea that uh, if, we, if we read it this way, the ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So as of the time this is being written, or from John's perspective, these ten have not stepped into rule yet. But they will, and they will do so. They will receive some type of authority as kings for a limited amount of time, for one hour. It'll be a short period of time. These are of, now this is important. This is the main gist of what we're reading here. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And why is that significant? Because remember, this, is, this beast represents the Antichrist. And his great swindle, if you will, is to hijack the identity of Jesus, to use the same things that Jesus uses to gather loyalty and allegiance. To, and he uses them to fool people into blindly or drunkenly following here. And now he's being presented as a king of kings. A king of kings. And he just set himself up at this point in human history, whenever it happens, whoever these ten kings are, as a king of kings. And he's called them to great unity and allegiance. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So this is ramping up to this great conflict, this epic battle. And this Antichrist will rise against Jesus himself with these ten false kings, presenting himself what? 
as one who had a mortal wound who was healed, who was and is and is to come. He's presenting himself as a king to king to make war with the one who truly is the king of kings, who was and is and is to come. The one who had a mortal wound on the cross and went to the grave and yet was healed. And the lamb will conquer them. The lamb will conquer them. The lamb might conquer them. I hope the lamb conquers them. The lamb will conquer them. Why? For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Verse 15. And then the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the, where the prostitute is seated, now Babylon was seated along the waters of the Euphrates River. So that imagery here, I think, is being implied of a city set on this amazing, magnificent waterway. But look at the symbolism here. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. Again, that is hijacking the worship of God. Going all the way back to like the Psalms talk about the day when the nations will flow like rivers to a mountain under the presence of God from every tribe, language, and tongue, and ethnicity. And so right here in this particular moment in human history, the uh, Antichrist has hijacked the identity of God and people are flooding to his throne to worship him. And these are the people. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Well, that's interesting because just a few verses before, they were using her. Right? They were in bed with her. And now they have turned in hatred towards the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. This is the second time in Revelation we've seen Satan turn on his people. Now, this quite possibly is the same instance, just being repeated and described again. You see that? You see how Satan promises pleasure, and in the end, what does he deliver? Death. He turns on the prostitute. He makes her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burns her up with fire. So the waters are the worldwide followers of the beast. At this point in time, the prostitute has been turned against, and she's desperate. She's left desolate and desperate. She's full of shame, right, because she's, she's naked. That's symbolic of shame. Adam and Eve, when they felt shame, what did they do? They covered up. They hid. She's been exposed. She's shamed. They devoured her flesh. This arena imagery of the dogs attacking the, the, the Christians that look like animals, it wasn't, it wasn't a quick death. It was slow. It was suffering. So now she's experiencing suffering, and then they burn her up with fire in the end, again from the, the Roman influences against Christians, putting her to death. Satan will turn on his followers. Revelation 6, 1 through 8 talks about the civil war. Revelation 9 through 11 talks about Satan turning on the, those who don't have the, um, that have the market or don't have uh, the seal of God, who are not followers of Jesus. Here he's turning on the prostitute. So let me just, let me just share some truth with you right now, okay? Some really hard truth. I have a feeling that if we look back over 2015 in the life of every person here, there's going to be some sense of suffering or hardship that you walked through or endured. Yours might have been momentary, a day or two, a week or two. Some of you, the whole year just really was, was rough. Jesus tells us in John 10.10 10 why that is. Because we live in a fallen world, we live in a world, and our, our enemy, Satan himself, prowls around like a roaring lion. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says the thief comes only to, it's the only motive, to steal, to kill, and destroy. Of course, he says what? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. But make no mistake, our enemy is real and he is seeking to devour you, to kill you, to steal from you and to destroy everything about you. We just saw that play out with the prostitute, didn't we? Jesus warned all of us. This is what he does. And now with the prostitute, he's done that. He's turned on her. He's left her desperate and full of shame and full of suffering and brought her even to death. If you're taking notes with us, promising pleasure, Satan always leads his followers to desperation, shame, suffering, and death. 
He always leads his followers to desperation, shame, suffering, and death. Two great truths about your life this year, 2016. God has a plan and a purpose for you. A plan that according to his economy is prosperous for you. Not necessarily according to your economy, but according to his economy. It's good. He has a plan for you. But you also have an enemy who has a plan against you. Against you and your family. Against you as an individual follower of Jesus. He wants to attack you at your identity. He wants to whisper lies into your ear. Nobody loves you. You're worth nothing. Don't let people know who you really are. They'll walk away from you. These are all lies from the enemy. He wants to bring death both literally and metaphorically, to important relationships, marriages, friendships. You're going you're gonna to have the potential to smell the stench of death as you walk through this year, as he implements his strategies against the people around you and maybe even you yourself. Now, as Christ's followers, we're to not to give in to that drunk, drunkenness, not to be intoxicated with right, these false lies. But just know that there's a God who sits on the throne who says, you know what? I have a better plan for you this year. Don't be lured by the intoxication of his schemes. Don't, don't listen to his lies. He's going to promise you that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And guess what? When you get over there, the grass is rotting with the stench of death. Don't go chasing waterfalls. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. <laughs> Let's finish this chapter. Verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. One last reminder this prostitute, Babylon, will look a whole lot like Babel in Genesis 11, a whole lot like Babylon, uh, going all the way back into uh, 7th and 8th and 9th century B.C., will look a lot like Rome in 1st century and 2nd century A.D. And these are just symbolism, types of the one to come, this great city that will have dominion over kingdoms, presenting itself as what? A false king of kings. But God ends here by, by letting us know what? These things are absolutely going to happen, but they're only going to happen under his sovereign authority. Without his authority, his sovereignty over this, this is doomsday, right? This is go dig a bunker in the backyard and stock it with water and canned goods and, and arm yourself, right? This is like, I got no other hope if I don't fight for myself. But God says, you know, as he says to John, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I, because I am and I, or I was and I am and I am to come and, and you know me and I know you. I'm, I'm yours and you're mine. You, you follow me by faith and I've adopted you into my family. God, my father, calls you son and daughter. You don't have to be scared. Why? Because all of this, though it's very certain to happen, happens under the sovereignty of the true king of kings. The prophecies of God, the prophecies of God will always unfold according to his will and under his control. According to his will and under his control. There's the, there's the temptation to feel like it's out of control. Did you have some moments like that in 2015? This just seems out of control. God, did you forget about me over here? Or what's going on here? Or you may have some of those moments this year. But all those small moments that feel like everything's unraveling, we're reminded by the truth of God's word. God's saying to you, my child, listen, I know it feels really rough right now, but I've got this. There's a bigger story unfolding here. I've got my hand on your little story, your small piece of the timeline. I've got my hand on it. I see what's going on. We're going to make it through this. I am the king of kings. I was and I am and I am to come, and I've got this. The one who's waging war against you, trust me, trust me, he's not much of a match for me. I'll show up with my presence and silence him. I'll take one step towards him and he's underneath my feet. This great war that's waging will end in an instant at the words, spoken words of Jesus. When he says to death, you shall come no further. When he says to Satan, your time on earth is done. I, I just picture it in a Russell Crowe voice. Can't help it. I'm gladiator. 
as he speaks to the emperor, your time for honoring yourself will soon come to an end is what I hear Jesus saying in this passage. I get the final word. I'm the omega, the final chapter. All right. Now, we're going to skip 18 because 18 is a a recap of 17. Next week, we're going to come back and pick up 19, which quite possibly could be the the, the biggest or the most debated chapter in Revelation among biblical scholars and theologians. So we're going to have a lot of fun next week. I'll bring some illustrations and try to confuse you and then send you home. It'll be great. Um, But for today, here's what I want to do. I want to pray. Um, We're going to take communion in just a moment. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we invite you, if you're a Christian, to take communion with us today. Um, Just want to take time, though. Like, communion isn't something we want to walk into flippantly as a church. Um, We take it every month, and we never want it to become um, ordinary or routine, right? So what we want to do every time before we take communion is just take time to prepare our hearts and reflect on the great symbolism of community, of communion, that through Jesus' body being broken on our behalf and suffering and going to the cross and the shedding of his blood, you and I have hope, we have life, we have grace, we have peace, we have forgiveness. When you think of the cross, you need to, you need to hear God the Father saying to you, hey, I'm going to take your place. I, I know you've made some bad choices. Let me take your place. I'll take upon myself the suffering that you deserve and the punishment you deserve. So when we take communion together as a church, we're celebrating that together. So we want to take a moment just to meditate on um, just how amazing God's grace has been for you. Would you do that? Just take a minute to think about, um, let's pray together. Um, Think about the goodness of God's grace over your life. As you think about how good God's been to you, Maybe you take a second just to take some inventory. Are there any relationships in your life that experience the, maybe an attack from the enemy this past year that, that need to be healed up? Maybe your own relationship with God today is a little bit fragile and you feel like you walked in today a little bit distant from God and you haven't spent time with him and it's been a while. And, and just know that as a loving father, he's, He's here with his arms stretched out before you take communion today just to, to, to wrap you up in his embrace and remind you that his, you're his child and that as you take communion today, you're celebrating that. So wherever you are, just take a minute just to allow God to prepare your heart. I'm gonna ask Jason Martin just to play some music behind us for a few minutes and, and allow God to get our hearts ready for communion.